You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Last but not least, um, I'm super excited because uh, you guys you guys know Julie Hafer? Yeah. You know Julie. So actually, Julie, uh, who uh, did kids downstairs for uh, about two years, her husband, and, or her husband Scott and her, uh, had kind of built the uh, kids' ministry over the last years out of Camelot into Sweetbriar and did the gift of organization. How many of you guys know that that third grader uh, teacher gift of organization is something that is sorely, sorely, sorely needed within the church hallways? And so if you ever look at the closets with all the name tags and everything, that was her. Um, I asked her to uh, do a teaching today, uh, and, uh, and so... Um, She's a fantastic communicator, and you guys are, 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 are bummed because she was not able to do the teaching, but she said she'd give me the testimony. I said, I'll take the testimony even though it's not the teaching. Uh, because um, if you would, I'll do two birds with one stone, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 at the very bottom, you'll find this little vignette, this little story. And uh, you're going to be so glad because I was looking at that thing, Tom, and I was like, man, this thing is so small, and nobody even knows if we missed it. We're just going to breeze right by it. we got to get on to the schedule and get on to Acts chapter 10 because we're doing a chapter a week. And I was just so thankful the Lord told me to just push pause on that and make sure that we take care of Dorcas. Dorcas is her name at the bottom there. So Dorcas and Aeneas in the story there. And, and so anyways, Dorcas, uh, it just has one line about her. It says that she fed the poor and that she um, did good all the days of her life. Um, and, and, and upon her passing, she's actually resurrected through a miracle. Um, so not a teaching today, but at least a testimony from Miss Julie. She's got a fun pictures of Scott and lots of good things. Uh, that she's going to share this morning. But would you guys give a warm welcome for your friend and mine, Julie Hafer, as she comes up to share a bit of a story this morning. Good morning. Uh, yeah, Oliver called. He's like, you know, you could just do the whole teaching. And I was like, no. And he's like, yeah, but I gave you a couple weeks. I'm like, no, no, that's, that's not going to happen. Anyway, did you want me to start with reading the scripture, end with reading the scripture? End with reading it? Start with reading Well, you got to give me scripture. Let me get my uh, U version uh, Bible up. I'll just um, stall here and let you know that I did come in like you guys with my J. Crew outfit, you know, my fall sweater thing, and was talking to somebody who was having such a great time outside. I spilled coffee all over myself like a third grader, and so had to had to steal one of these. Uh, uh, great City Light shirts uh, out there for $5 if you want one in the, in the lobby. So there you go. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be in Acts um, chapter 9, verse 36. And this is my apology, Julie. I set you up wrong. No I'm going to read um, just uh, all the way down to the bottom of the chapter, 32 through, 32 uh, through the end. Yep, through 43. All Thanks. right. And then we end with this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Always forget. Yep. All right. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Aeneas said to Peter, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up, and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lida was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lida, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the, windows stood around, all the widows stood around him, 
crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, and then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. I'm not going to tell the story about someone being raised from the dead this morning, but uh, <laughs> this when Oliver called me, he said, you had shared this story with Kyra at one point, and she was really touched by it, and I thought you might want to come share with the congregation this morning, and I'm like, I told Kyra that. It was just kind of one of those things where it's like, I don't remember telling her about this, but anyway, that's why I'm here, because it fits in with what we're reading this morning, and um, I'm going to go way back and cover a lot of years, so here we go, and I have pictures, and I did not invite my children, because they would all be going, Mom, seriously, you're showing people that, so anyway, so this is a picture of Scott's parents, and uh, over 10 years ago, Scott's dad began to have declining health, and um, it was a course of a couple years probably, but at the very end, we got a call to the hospital that this was the end, so we all rushed to the hospital and said goodbye to his dad, which was a terribly sad day, and then we had to plan the memorial service, and Scott's mom was there, you know, kind of guiding us through what she would like to have happen at the service, and um, she had said she really would like some family to share because she said, it always makes me so sad when I go to a funeral and nobody in the family says anything. Well, it's really hard to say something when you're a family, but <laughs> she said, I really like that. So Scott's brother volunteered to say something. He was very close to his dad, and his sister also read something, and so we had the memorial service. And so four months later, Scott's mom had to go have some surgery, did very well after the surgery, and they were talking about sending her home, and all of a sudden she developed an aggressive staph infection, and like within 24 hours she was gone. And we were all just like shocked because we didn't expect it. And so then now it's down to time for the kids to plan the memorial service for Scott's mom. And um, so as we're planning, all the kids were like, I can't say anything. I can't. I can't get up and do it. And they're like, and so we kind of had the conversation, well, you know, nobody has to say, the family doesn't have to say anything in a memorial service. But then those words kind of came back. You know, it really makes me sad when nobody at the funeral says anything. And we're all like, Ugh. So finally I was like, okay, I'll say something. And so, um, sounds kind of weird, the daughter-in-law is getting up saying something about the mother-in-law, but you have to know the story. So I'm going to go just start at the beginning. So Scott's parents were married back in the early 50s. Is that? No, they were married in the 40s. Um, I was like, Scott's brother was born in 49. No, it had to be the 40s. <laughs> so anyway, back in the 40s, and Scott's dad had gone to Annapolis, Navy man, uh, gas turbine engineer. He actually was brought to Greenville to help build the GE plant back in the 60s. So that's how Scott ended up, ended up in Greenville. Um, so they came here. He was very 
um, successful. The president of many organizations, he was the president of HOA, the president of Full Gospel Businessmen. He taught Sunday school classes. He was a group uh, small group leader, had Bible studies at the house. He worked with Teen Challenge with kids in drugs back in the 70s, you know, long time ago. And he had certificates and plaques and diplomas and pins and medals from the military. He had all the stuff, so you could see how important he was. Um, But he had graduate degrees. He went back and got his doctorate degree after he retired from GE and started a career counseling service. And so he was a busy man, an important man, and got all kind of things done, and everybody knew it. They they knew he was an important man. Well, Scott's mom was always kind of in his shadow, and she worked daily supporting his activities. Like, this is back in the day, guys, before laptops. And I know that's hard for you to understand, but this is back in the day when you wanted something. You got your typewriter out, put the paper in there, backspace with a little whiteout if you messed it up. And so she worked almost daily for him. She'd type minutes to meetings he was heading up, and she typed his college papers when he went back to school, typed his thesis for him, and kept records for his counseling service. And also she was a prolific seamstress. I mean, she sewed all the time. In fact, I'm sure she made that dress. She's got on right there. But anyway, she would, in the early days, to help save money, when his shirts, his dress shirts would start getting worn out, she would rip them out, take them off, flip them over, and sew them back on to extend the life in them. She made leisure suits for him. She did. She made Western shirts complete with snaps, you know, the different color yokes and all that kind of stuff. So she just was busy, busy all the time, cooking three meals a day, you know, the whole thing that moms do. And I don't think she felt particularly valuable. You know, Scott's dad knew he was, he knew he was important. He had all this stuff to show for it. But she just kind of did what moms do. It was her role to help her maid. She was trying to help him succeed. That's what she did. And when Scott's dad passed away, I was like, we need to figure out how to help her feel like she still has purpose and things she can do to make her feel like, you know, <laughs> you know, there's reason to live. And Scott just said her main joy was, was, uh, was what she liked to do was her main joy and purpose was serving my dad. And so we're like, great, what are we going to do now? But You know, she passed away, so we didn't have to worry about it. But (laughs) then there was her children. When her children came along, she sewed for them, did what she needed to do for them. And then, now this is where poor Scott, I'm being real transparent here today. I'm probably showing you some things he wished I wouldn't be showing you. But (laughs) Scott became a teenager. (laughs) Now, you, you guys have to understand... He was cool. So all you cool people out there, I just want you to know your days are numbered. It's temporary, so don't, yeah, I'll think you're all that. It's temporary. So Scott was a teenager. Now, you guys have to understand, long hair back then, nobody had had long hair since the Bible days. So he was like on the cutting edge of the long hair thing. And you had to be bold to walk around with your hair like that because it was not a thing except for those that, you know, made it a thing. Anyway, um, prom was coming up, 
and his mama made him a white tux with tails like the one John Lennon had on on Abbey Road because Scott saw it and said, that's what I want to wear to prom. So she made him a tux with tails like that. And then he was the lead singer in a rock band, and, you know, the Battle of the Bands was coming up. He wanted some silver LeMay bell bottoms, so she made him some. And if you don't know what silver LeMay is, it's sparkly. So he had some. And she made him an amazing two-piece suit, you know, the jacket and the pants. It was a really cool burgundy and navy plaid. And we dated a few times. He wore that. But she didn't think anything of it. She's being a mom, and she was being supportive. Did she love everything he's doing? No. <laughs> but she was being a mom, and she was being supportive. By the time I married him, he cut his hair, and he didn't look like that. That's what he looked like when I married him. <laughs> but when we got married, I was 18, and I actually wore a dress that she had made for Scott's sister when she got married, and that was my wedding dress. And little did I know the impact she was going to have on my life. So immediately from our wedding, we got married in Texas and immediately got in our car and moved to South Carolina, a thousand miles away from all of my friends and family. And like I said, I was 18. And she became like my second mom. In fact, I didn't really know how to cook. And so she took me under her wing and she taught me how to make Roman holiday and hamburger wild rice casserole and meatball soup and surprise muffins, which were all the things Scott wanted to eat. And if I made it and I didn't make it just like him, he'd say, this doesn't taste like my mom's. You know, it's like, okay, all right. So I have, I even to this day have all the recipes just written out. She, she helped me learn how to sew, I mean, how to cook. And so um, five years into our marriage, we started a family. And we had two little girls in three years, and she started smocking and sewing. So that's, the first one's Laura, the second one's Ashley, and she made both of their dresses, and she made my dress. <laughs> so uh, we just, we can go through books and books and books, and it's just like, yep, yep, Scott's mom did that, Scott's mom did that. She learned to smock so she could make our girls the sweetest little wardrobes. And even when my niece came to visit from Texas, she had extra fabric, so she made her a dress to match, and then we added a boy to our family. So she, oh, there's the, the three granddaughters and Scott's parents, and then we added a boy, so she learned how to make boy clothes, <laughs> and then my sister came to visit again, and she had a boy, and it was Easter time, so she made the girls and the boys matching Easter outfits. <laughs> now, I know you wouldn't dress your little boy like that in 2022, but in the early 90s, that was so cute. I mean, they were just really cute. You know, I don't regret that. <laughs> they may. <made. laughs> anyway, I had a friend one time, it's a guy I went to church with, and he said, what did he, what did he say? He, you dress him up like a girl. And I said, Joe, if God needed more rednecks, he would have given you boys, but he only had girls, you know? So, Whatever. I didn't, I, we took it. It was okay. He's pretty cute. Anyway, we added another girl to our family, and she just kept making the clothes. It was awesome. And she didn't just make the clothes. She made costumes for him to play in. So, yep, there you go. She made that costume, bought him the TP, and then uh, we had an Easter play at church. She made the girls their Bible costumes, and then they just played in the backyard half the time, dressed up like prairie girls, and 
Yes, that is their little sister that they played with out in the playhouse. <laughs> and uh, so um, then when I moved into a new house, she made the curtains, she made the placemat, she made the pillow shams, she made quilts. And then I started homeschooling, and um, my kids were spread out, so she would take them one at a time and do a school day with them just so they would have a chance to get away and have some one-on-one because you don't get a whole lot when there's a family of four and they're all different ages and things going on. Um, We always went on a beach trip with them every year, and she always brought, they brought so much stuff that we would make, come on, can we just go to the beach and take a beach bag? But we would have just, she would line up just bags of things to take for the family. Half of it was food, but she would take a tub mat so my kids wouldn't fall in the bathtub. And I'm like, seriously, we can get by without a week of a tub mat. But looking back, I'm like, what a sweet, sweet thing to show up with a tub mat so my kids don't fall in the bathtub, you know. Um, and then when my kids, the older ones, got to high school age, we put them at um, private Christian school, and it was expensive, and so she had started getting social security checks at that point, never gotten a paycheck before, but she had her own money then, and so she wanted to make a contribution. She called it grandma's scholarship. It's like $100 a month or something that she would give towards their tuition, and then when my girls turned 16, she gave them each hope chest, and I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's just a big wooden chest to start putting things for your future in, so yeah, thanks for when you get married and have your own family, and for my son, it's like, what am I going to get him? And he was like, I'd like some drums. So she brought him a drum kit for his 16th birthday. And he's in Nashville right now playing drums. So there you go. But anyway, she was just being a mother-in-law. She was just being a mom. She was just being a grandma. And I don't think she felt particularly important, you know, or not important, but she didn't feel valuable. She knew Scott's dad was valuable. I don't know if she felt that she was that valuable. Um, but it wasn't just limited to family either. When we had church dinners, every, every when her church had church dinners every Wednesday night, she would be there cooking before the church dinner. She volunteered at St. Francis, handing out magazines and mail and that kind of thing once a week. And she worked, volunteered for the Greenville County Schools, helping children who needed help with reading deficits. She'd go in once a week and had a child that she would work with each week. And when she left this earth, it just left this hole. You know, it just left a void. And it wasn't because we needed a new dress or a new turkey because Thanksgiving was, or a turkey because Thanksgiving was coming. But she was her family's safe place to land, you know? And Scott's dad was valuable, but he didn't really make the safe place to land. She made the safe place to land. And she's the one that was bandaging the knees and bringing the tub mat for the bathtub and singing songs to the kids that had fallen down or, or were scared to go to sleep. And she just represented a love with no bounds. And we didn't grieve for her loss because she was with her heavenly father. And we knew she was hearing, well done, that good and faithful servant. We knew it. Uh, we grieved for ourselves because there was just this void. And I just really feel like um, the atmosphere in the room when Dorcas died was just like, she, she's gone. You know, she, she was there for us. She, she provided for us. She was our soft place to land. When we needed something, we would turn and there would be Dorcas standing there. And so 
that's why I shared what I shared today. Thank you. As you listen to um, that testimony that Julie shared, uh, who is it that you're um, missing this morning? Who's... um, whose significance, their impact, um, has mattered more to you almost in their absence than in their presence. Sometimes it's not until the funeral, it's a shame, you know, that you get put in front of a blank piece of paper to write a homily or a eulogy about somebody, and all of a sudden, all of the stuff that you wish you would have said, you don't have a chance to say anymore, because it's not until they're gone that you realize how much they meant to you. Funerals can be a lesson in life like that. I I heard this one story about C.S. Lewis and J.R.L. Tolkien, you know, those famous guys, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Lord of the Rings. They had this third friend, Charles, um, I can't even remember his name, Charles Williams. I don't know if we know his name. He passed on, but he was also a writer. And there's this really powerful testimony that C.S. Lewis gave this one time that out of the three friends, that when the third friend died, that not only the third friend died, but the relationship between the two other friends and that friend died as well. All of the humor that that third friend brought out, all of the, the tension, the checks and balances, all of those things that, not only that the Charles Williams did within the meetings of the three different people, but all the, that he was, his personality and, and, the, and the way that he conducted himself within the group, not only caused the third friend to die, but part of the two other friends that remained to die as well. Psychologists even say that like when a spouse of ours dies, that even part of our memory, as we grow and get married and so forth, we sort of store memory and information and, and, we, and, 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 uh, and, details in the other spouse, so much so when the spouse passes away, then it's like a side of us dies. And so unfortunately, it's really sad, right? That's the nature of things is that we oftentimes don't know the influence of somebody until they're gone. And it's not just the stars, isn't it? We have these people, when we tell our stories, there's these classic people that you'll hear me talk about, like Isaac and, you know, my youth pastor, I'll talk about Uncle Peter or my dad or my mom or whatever. It's not just those people, right? It's not just the stars that when they pass away, we realize their influence. It's the supporting cast. It's the extras. Like, I don't have a sermon illustration big enough to talk about Mr. Rosamilia in my sixth grade class, but he was the first kind Christian that I ever met. And he made an influence on me. Between churches, at one point I went to this house church and I was like 21 or whatever and got married to Kyra and they picked me to be the worship leader. Just be blessed that Timothy's the worship leader and not me, right? In this house church, And this lady, Becky, she was older than me, and she was like the pastor with her husband, and she called me Pastor Oliver at 21 because she saw something in me. And I'm not saying that, like, I have a story to tell about her, this big moment where, like, God spoke and everything thundered, but she made a mark on me. She made an impact on me. And so it's not just the main characters, I guess, in our story, but all the supporting cast that ultimately can make a difference. And so if you're just joining us, we're typically making our way through books of the Bible. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 9, a small little vignette at the bottom after Paul's big um, radical transformation. This whole section, if we have the target up there on the screen of 8 through 12, is really a season of church transition. We start in chapter 8 with a 100% Jewish church, and we end in chapter 12 in the church of Antioch with a multilingual, multicultural, multidimensional, multigenerational church that God has brought um, a church that starts at this one place to not finish there, but to finish in a totally new transformational place. And right there in the middle, we have this little vignette, this little story that maybe uh, if a preacher was too busy, he might scoot right past and go right on to, to Acts chapter 10. But, um, but I think this story is important. You know, Acts, is, it's a documentary. It's a loose collection of stories, but there's a director to it. And he decides how to move the camera to and fro and decide what we're supposed to be looking at as, as the audience. 
And so um, I don't know if you're like me, sometimes the book of Acts actually can do the exact opposite of what it's intent to do. The book of Acts is meant to activate the church. But sometimes if you're like me, when you read the book of Acts and you see the apostles do what they do and the fervor and the boldness and the power and the movement that was going on in the church, you read this book and you think, the very last thing that I would ever think by reading this book is feeling empowered. I'm not an apostle, I'm just a teacher. I'm just a house mom, I'm just... um, I'm just a small group leader. I'm just a neighbor. I'm just a grandpa. I'm just a grandparent. Like, I'm not Paul. I'm not Peter. And so the, so the director of the documentary, Luke, he, he knows that. And he, he kind of guides you back to this small little story. And, and Dorcas, it's just one little verse. And all it says about her is that she did good and fed the poor. And in her passing, her friends bring her before Peter. She experiences a resurrection, which she would, of course, die again. But that sign would leave an indelible mark in the hearts and minds of not only her family, but the entire city of Joppa this place that she lived, and then on into the, into the nations. And so this is what I want you to kind of get um, in terms of not just the reading, but what the reading teaches us in terms of how to read the book of Acts is that although the apostles that we read about in these stories, the big stories that we all remember and, and quote, although the apostles are really great at embodying what Christian life is, they don't encapsulate it. The apostles are lifted up and there are these, these intense models of everything the church is and everything the church should be doing. But it can't possibly, they can't possibly encapsulate all the different cast of characters and the people that are littered throughout this book. And so we do well not to just zone in on just one individual person or one individual hero, but all of the cast of characters that, and the names that exist in the book of Acts tell us really the full story, which is not what is an apostle, what is the church? What is the church like and what should the church be doing? And so... Um, so ultimately, I'll, think of, I'll talk about it like this way. Um, when I was uh, teaching history, the very first thing that I would have you do is uh, I'd have you memorize all the presidents. The first thing, you get all the bonus points, and it was well worth your while, not only for Jeopardy in life, but also for the test, because once you have the presidents, then you know the timeline, and once you know the timeline, you know the events. So it's Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Marimes, Jackson, and Buren. And if you just add four, all you have to do is you can add four, and you're ha- halfway there, because you can just have a bookshelf of where to put events when they, when they show up. And so this is my idea, right? Like, if I was going to try to communicate to you Um, what it means to be an American. I can show you George Washington's example, but George Washington can't encapsulate what it means to be an American. You see? Like, George Washington isn't a flapper. He didn't dance in the 1920s and help, you know, progressive culture happen. George Washington wasn't a robber baron. He didn't help, you know, railroads barrel across the United States in important times. George Washington wasn't a Native American. George Washington wasn't uh, a Major League Baseball player. Like, we can't paint the full picture of what it be- means to be American just because we see who George Washington is. And, and, so, um, and so this is what um, I think we can, we can land on because then we can ask ourselves the question, like, if, as we read things like Saul and Peter and Paul and these types of things, if, if the apostles are made to embody but not totally encapsulate what it means to be the church, then the question should be, what does it mean to be the church? And this is kind of the, the, the line that comes to mind as we read through this study today, just a short few verses. But the line that comes to mind about what it means to be a Christian is that Christianity is not defined, ultimately, by radical actions. We read the book of Acts and we feel under, under-empowered, under-equipped, my life doesn't look like this. I don't see these types of healings. I don't move at this pace. I don't see those types of, of, of conversions at this rate. And so we, we, we deduce that as the standard, as the goal. We fall short of that. And now all of a sudden, the book that's supposed to activate us deactivates us. But Christianity is not defined by the apostles. It's defined by Jesus, first of all. But Christianity ultimately is not measured or defined by radical action. Listen, it's measured by radical obedience. 
It's measured by life on our knees before Jesus saying, what's next? That is all that's expected and that's all that's required. And whether or not that, that's successful in your eyes, whether or not that earns you favor in other people's eyes, whether or not uh, that leads to anybody accepting Jesus or nobody accepting Jesus, none of that really matters because ultimately what makes a Christian a Christian is not radical action, but radical obedience. It's a yes before Jesus, come what may. So I don't know if you guys have ever heard of YWAM before. Um, YWAM, Youth uh, With a Mission, I think is the acronym. Um, this guy named Andrew Bird, I heard him on a podcast, the Jesus Culture Leadership Podcast this last week, and I just thought he was so winsome and kind, but passionate, and I just thought, um, just really helped me think about really this study in, in the book of Acts in general, you know. And they were asking him this great question, right? Because if you've ever experienced YWAM or know somebody that goes to YWAM, they go to YWAM and they come back and they can't fit into the local church, right? Have you ever experienced this before? You go on YWAM, you go on the mission field, let's just say the mission field, you come back and you see everybody and you're just like, what are these Christians doing? How come we're not on mission? How can we see all these things overseas and we don't see these things at home? And, and so they brought this question to Andrew Bird, and I thought the response was great. He gave three different responses, but the first response was this, is that basically if missionaries are having a hard time integrating with the church, and if the church is having a hard time integrating with missionaries, then the problem is we don't have a big enough vision. That a country needs farmers and soldiers. Soldiers can't get fed if they don't have farmers. And farmers can't get protected if they don't have soldiers protecting them. And so the church needs to have a big enough vision. We have a small vision. I don't need your gift. But if we have a big enough vision, I need you desperately to do what it is that I'm not doing. And there needs to be this respect, right? So he told this story, and he talked about this YWAM. I think they went to this, like, Norway or someplace where Christianity wasn't welcome, not, like, illegal, but not welcome. And they got blasted in the headlines about how YWAM was preaching this radical Christian message, right? And uh, he went to read it, and actually he was celebrating it because he was like, all of your criticisms were compliments to me. I'm glad that this is why you're rejecting me, because if you're rejecting me for something, I hope you're rejecting me for the gospel. This is what he says, right? But at the same time, this is good news for the YWAM, the churches felt so bad because they realized that if uh, we're preaching a message that is rejected, right, by uh, YWAM, but it's, but, or it's rejected on the, on, the, on the case of YWAM, but it's not rejected by the church, then what is the message we're actually preaching as the church? In other words, what he's saying is that all of Christianity, not just missionaries, is radical obedience, all of it is. Youth group is radical obedience. If it's not radical, then it's not obedient. Whether big or small, slow or fast, Christianity is not radical action, it's radical obedience. And number two, speaking to missionaries, is that all of mission, missional life, whether you're in the church or abroad, is not just about radicalism, but it's about obedience. Can you radically tithe? Can you radically serve with middle schoolers? Can you radically show up consistently in a small group? In other words, it's not about the measure of the action. It's the measure of the, of the obedience that makes the book of Acts what the book of Acts is. So a couple of short verses that I think talks about this really well. Verse 32, uh, it says, Peter was traveling about the country, and he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. So it's a short little detour, but I, I want to just take an opportunity to talk about this. In Acts chapter 9, you have two different healings. And... Um, and again, this is a photo book. It's not a textbook, but there is some teachings that go on when you, when you think about um, your theology or your uh, perspective on the idea of healing. There's some really great information here, some, some really great observations that take place in these two healings. Uh, number one, and there's actually three things that I'll put up there on the screen, is that both of the healings that take place, both for Aeneas and for Dorcas, they happen inside the church. That should catch our attention. Because sometimes we can have this theology where it's like healing only exists for the sake of signs and wonders that leads to salvation. But both of the people that are in this book that get healed are already saved. 
So in other words, it's not for the sake of evangelism. It's for the sake of pastoring. God cares about, why does somebody get healed? Because God loves them. There's no ulterior motive. There's no, like, you know, like, hidden agenda. It's like, I care about this person's need, and so when they cry out a need, I answer them. So healing is for the church. It's not just for mission. Number two, it should catch our attention, and we're always looking for, we have to wrestle with this stuff, right? So there's, we have to ask ourselves and ask, is this a sometimes, always, or one-time thing? Okay? But in both of these healings, the church has to get up and go get an apostle to come and heal. So the Holy Spirit is a gift, and anybody can ask for healing, and I'm going to pray for your healing. If you come to me sick, I'm an elder. I'm going to put oil on your forehead, and we're going to pray for you, because we're going to ask for healing, because God loves you. But there's also a gift of healing. And so that's there. So if you ever want to think about that theology or process that with somebody, but like, they, they didn't just put hands on this person to pray. They went and got Peter. That has to matter, right? And lastly, that the healing is for the gospel, that ultimately the healing inside the church did travel outside the church and led to people coming, coming into the church. But just a couple of those notes as we work through. So anyways, verse 36. So Joppa, um, oh, excuse me, verse 32. As Peter traveled around the country, he went to visit the Lord's people. He went to this church. <clears throat> now, now, this is a reintroduction to Peter. Last time we saw Peter, he was at the gate, beautifully healed uh, this lame guy. Just before that, he had preached to 3,000 people. He saw a bunch of people get saved. Now, notice, this is just great directing, right? Like Steven Spielberg, director's cut right here, is that Luke takes you from the big to the medium to the small, Okay. So Peter, where is he? He's traveling we're all around, first-class miles, just around the country. Where is Peter? He's in the nations. Where Peter get, Peter get sent, disciples get sent, is go to the nations. So he goes out to the nations, and he's preaching to the nations, but he's not too busy preaching to the nations that he's not going to stop for the neighborhood. As Peter traveled around the country, he went to visit the Lord's people in Possum Kingdom. <laughs> right? Who knows? Lida, this place that we haven't heard of in a long time, right? So he, he's not too busy to preach to the nations. He stops at the neighborhood. Verse 33, and not only will he stop for the neighborhood, he goes directly to this dude's house, Aeneas, and therefore stops for the name. You see that? That the Lord's heart is for nations. But you know why the Lord cares about nations? Because it's full of neighborhoods. You know, little poor neighborhoods and rich neighborhoods and parochial schools and private schools. He loves the little neighbors. You know why he loves the little neighborhoods? Because it's full of names. He knows every single one of their names. And not only that, he knows their names. Listen to what it says about him that the Lord and the Spirit and Peter all know the guy's story. He knows the nation because he knows the neighborhoods. He knows the neighborhoods because he knows the names. And he knows the names because he knows the stories. He knows the stories, and he prays about the stories. I said, what is that? Rick Warren one time said, I was bad at memorizing names. You don't memorize names because you don't pray for people, is what Rick Warren said. I was like, that might be true. Okay, so the Lord's heart is for this next verse, who is paralyzed. And listen, and he had been bedridden, and the Lord, like, he just not just knows the situation. He's been counting the years with him. He's been bedridden for eight years. He knows every second that that guy's been on that bed waiting for a healing. Verse 34, Aeneas, Peter says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. All the healings end with get up. The get up. Get up is an Easter word. You know what get up is? It's a get up from the tomb type of get up. That's what Easter is, right? So it's this Easter thing that all the miracles are not magic tricks. They're tied to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to show the ultimate death in life in Jesus Christ that all of us would not just get up from our beds, but get up from our death is what he's preaching to anybody that would hear. And immediately, Aeneas gets up. So this is the point that the neighborhoods made up, nations made up of neighborhoods, neighborhoods made up of names, names made up of stories. But the story doesn't exist for yourself, right? What does Aeneas do once he's healed? He doesn't just sit around and work on his retirement. Verse 34, somehow the word got out that the name does exist for the neighborhood and the neighborhood for the nations. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned towards the Lord. 
So um, have you ever been in a professional working environment and then they invite you over um, for a personal event over at their house, like a birthday or like a, you know, a retirement party or something, and you just sort of like get to know that person a, a lot more personally once you come into their house, right? And, uh, and so for me, like uh, I, was a, I was a teacher at a public school, and so sometimes you'd end up in the student's house and you'd learn a whole bunch of stuff that you would have never known about that student if you didn't go over to their house. Namely, they acted like they were part of a music video, but in real life, they were just somebody's kid, right? Whose mom did their laundry. <laughs> like, they put up, like, they make, like, $100,000 a year the way that they dress. You go by their home, and they're like, they're not making $100,000 a year. There's a big gap, right? So you go into somebody's house, and you really see, like, who that, who that person is. No matter what the socioeconomic status is, like, when you go into somebody's house, you can start to see their poverties, like, everybody's poor of something. And it's not until you come into a situation that you have much of that thing. You come into that situation, whether it's a father, whether it's relatives, you know, whether it's just manners, whether it's a warm household. Like, when you come into a cold household and you're used to a warm culture, you realize, whoa, there's like a poverty of communication in this place. And you realize some of the lacking that that household will have when you come into it. When you come to somebody else's house for the first time, you'll recognize some of the problems and the ways that they're stuck. And so I think this passage, you know, it would have me to ask and have me to think about with you. is like, if I went over to your house, not here in church when you're all dressed up, and let's say I just barged into your house and you didn't even know that I was coming over, didn't have time to clean up the dog hair, didn't have time to even sort out the fight that you just gotten in your spouse, what would I find in your house when I came to your house? I'd find something new, wouldn't I? Because there's something different about he- being healed at church and being healed at your house. There's something different from like being healed in your reputation and then being healed in your story. And Jesus cares, knows about your reputation, but it's like he cares and thinks about and prays about your story and comes to your house. It's significant that the person gets prayed for in his house after eight years of being stuck. And so it's just a a little bit of a side, you know, thing here, but I just have it in my notes that like healing is in the visitation. Like if Peter decides that his ministry is only for the stage and not for the home, this guy doesn't get healed. This guy is stuck at his house. So Peter has to have a view for the nations, but also the neighborhoods, and also for the names, because that's the heart of Jesus. And Anise has to have some friends, because I don't know how he's going to get out of his house to go get Peter if he doesn't have some friends to go get him, right? If you're stuck in different situations for eight and nine years, spiritually, physically, and mentally, do you have friends that know your stuckness? Do you have anyone with access to your life that doesn't have an hour buffer zone of you tidying yourself up before they come over? Because if they can't see your stuckness, they can't pray for your stuckness. And then ultimately, this guy Aeneas has to have the faith that when Peter comes and said, yesterday was the day for your paralysis, but today is the day for your healing, would you have the faith to get up, to turn, to repent, to follow and believe? So this healing, it begins to happen in the home and it makes its way throughout the neighborhoods. It makes its way so far, in fact, that it affects the second character in our story in the ripple effects named Dorcas. Verse 36, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha and her name in Greek is Dorcas. Isn't that just a great name? I feel like the Lord just knew that we'd be glazing over in Acts chapter 9 and then give us a great name like Dorcas just to help us remember Dorcas the do-good. I always name people in these Acts chapters so we can remember them. Dorcas the do-good. Right, Satanic Saul, and uh, Anxious Ananias, and uh, Bold Barnabas, right? And then Dorcas, the do-good. Because she was always doing good, and she was always helping the poor. I guess it goes without saying, you know, in the theme for the day, it's like, 
This is what I think this passage means. If for the rest of your life, 30, 40, 50, however long you're going to be on this planet, for the rest of your life, all you do is you get up and do good. If for the rest of your life, you never made another promotion, you never led anybody to Jesus, never saw another healing, never saw anything. The rest of your life, you just got up, you did good, and you gave to the poor. I think that this scripture at least is saying you're a success. What is success? What does it mean to be a Christian? What makes a Christian a Christian? Is it the busyness? Is it the success? Is it the thresholds, you know, the, the watermarks of measurement for ministry? Like, what is it that really contains and evaluates the success and the meaningfulness of somebody's life? Get up, do good, and feed the poor. You're a success. This is what's required. This is what it says. Verse 37, out of radical obedience, of course. Verse 37, about that time she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in the upstairs room. And Lida was near Joppa, the word travels fast across the neighborhoods and nations. And when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men and urged them, please come at once. And Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. And all the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made them while she was still with them. All right, I need seven people to stand up. Not all at once. I just need seven random people to just stand up and uh, be part of my little suit. You don't have to move or go to the stage. Right here, Karsten. There we go. Leader, Nema, there we go. We got one, two, three. We need, what, four more? Four, five, six, seven. There we go, Ashley. How about a hand for our uh, courageous volunteers? All right, so I wanted to um, have people standing so we could get a picture around this room of, um, of what we just read, which is ultimately what, you know, if I, if I put a label on it, if you guys still remain standing, is like a crisis response team. Because at the shallow reading... This is just another day at the office for Peter. Peter comes in. There's a need. Peter shows up, puts his hand on somebody. They get up and they get healed. It's just as simple as that, right? But if it's as simple as that, there wouldn't be all these details. There wouldn't be all the names in the neighborhood. There's actually not just one person involved in this healing. How many people are involved in this healing? At least seven, right? So first and foremost, I'm just going to call you Dorcas, okay? I mean, it doesn't really, you know, fit, I guess, the, the height and the, and the age or whatever. We'll just call you Dorcas, <laughs> But Dorcas, you brought everybody together. Like your life, <laughs> you're welcome. You need to be honored for, for being your Dorcas self. You fed the poor, and you're the reason why everybody's in the room. And if you're not doing good, we're not here, right? Now, Mackenzie, who back in this day, there weren't like uh, funeral home attendants, right? There weren't morticians. Mackenzie has such honor and humility in her life because of her friend Dorcas that even though it's not going to bring her back from the dead, and even though it's not really going to be seen on World Wide Web or the news, washes her dead body with love and grace, prepares for the funeral, right? Okay, and if it's not, if it's not for her doing that, then maybe Nema, who is in this case one of the disciples, who is apparently filled with so much faith, hears that Peter is going to come, decides that this thing isn't over till it's over. That there is something that's worthwhile, that has value enough in here, that we're going to go out of our way and go send somebody to go and get this person healed. So it's not for her, then these people don't happen, the, the morticians don't happen. If it's not for the morticians, the disciples don't happen. If it's not for the disciples, then Joey, the two sent ones, don't go out. If Dorcas doesn't know her and she doesn't know her, then her doesn't know him, then, then the, the two attendants to go out. That's a persecuted environment. 
They're going out on a mission that could get, get them assaulted or killed, right, or harmed. So the two disciples go out, and the two disciples, they go out and get Peter. How about a hand for Peter with the star back there? Our friend David, yeah? Peter's a busy apostle. He's got lots of people to see and feed and preach. If Peter's too busy or too tired or too self-absorbed, then he doesn't answer to this call of the sent ones. He doesn't come back to the disciples' request. He doesn't honor this person's tears. He doesn't honor Dorcas. He doesn't come back, and this guy doesn't, this Dorcas doesn't get healed, and the whole town doesn't see it, right? Are you catching this? You see the way this is building, right? Likewise, um, the guards have to help Peter to get to the door because if anyone's seen with Peter, by death of association, you might get slaughtered as well, right? So you're going to be in trouble. You have to put your neck out. And all of this comes back, right, to the full circle of Dorcas with all the widows that are holding her memory, telling her story, remembering the value of this person, carrying the heart of the Lord. How many people healed this person ultimately? Well, one person put their hand on them, but seven people were involved in the healing. All right, give a hand for our uh, demonstrators there. And that healing not only leads to the healing and the resurrection of Dorcas, but entire cities are changed because of the simple steps of radical obedience that took place within this thing. And here's the deal. It's not just what these people did. It's also the heart that they carried it with. It's the demonstration display of the morticians showing, or first of all, the goodness, which is through the spirit that shows in Dorcas's life, but the morticians' humility to wash the body of, of a dead person and their friend, the faith of the disciples to believe that something is better for them, the obedience of the messenger to go out and get Peter, the power of Peter that he can walk in courage and in faith and wisdom, the courage of the guards to lead them through, and the love of the widows that were hosting the environment of faith. It wasn't just one person that healed them. It was the entire crisis team, right? And so this is the deal. Like It, it, it puts this heavy sense of empowerment, but also this responsibility that the church is not built with bricks. It's built with the body of Christ, right? Body parts. Bricks are uniform and expendable. One brick is gone, we just go get another brick. You lose your kidney, you're in trouble. There's no more kidneys, right? Lose two kidneys, you're in trouble. The body of Christ is not uniform and, and expendable. It's unique and vital. Each part of the chain, if they didn't do their job, the next person wouldn't have gotten their job done, right? This is an entire assembly line. This isn't just some like soldiers in and soldiers out, get them boots, get them a helmet. These are family members, and each one plays a vital role. So here's the deal. The good news and the encouraging message today of the life of Dorcas is that you matter, and we don't know how much you matter until you're not here. But with great power comes great responsibility. And so when you're not here, we, don't, we, we feel it. And when you're not here, here's the other thing is we, we really feel it. Like, for example, if, 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 if the same people, right, are not here week to week on a church level, just on a Sunday morning or, or on a consistency level in small group, we feel it. Like if a guest comes in and they pulled their family out of bed and they got into the thing and they are a massive introvert and they finally met you and they shook, their hand, shook your hand and you got to know them and they come back the next Sunday and you're not here, that matters. We feel it, right? That's a compliment to you, but it's also an endowment of great power and great responsibility. If we don't have enough people, right, to serve, when you've been in this before, serve with kids, then it puts 80% of the work on 20% of the people. And if you don't, if you're not here, here, we feel that, right? Your absence, your absence is felt, both in positive ways and negative ways. When it comes to just overall, like, care, like, if, 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 you, if you're in this place and, and there isn't a, a sense of, of, of connection if there isn't a sense of hospitality with one another, have you ever been in a room that's full of life and warmth and connection and then full of 
the IRS, you know, drivers, what's it called? The DMV culture, right? Like, like each little decision that you and I make to be hospitable or inward matters. And not only what you do, right, but also, also who you are and what you carry. I, I do a, a morning group with, uh, with uh, three other guys um, on Thursdays named Sam, Joey, Will, and Maurice, okay? And so here's the thing um, about, about small group, if you're the leader and you're there every time, um, you realize that everyone's affecting everybody. Everyone's affecting everybody. And, and the disadvantage that you're in as a human being is you're just never in a room that you're not in. So you don't know the influence that you make in that room by way of your absence. You don't know what you bring, and therefore you don't know what it's like when you're not there. Right? But I know. So here's an example. Like, um, uh, uh, so Sam, so I call him Samwise in my head, Ganji, but I never tell him that because uh, he's just a faithful dude, probably serving downstairs and kids. Sam has a gift. This is how I describe it. Never told him this. Sam has a gift for joy. Like he's serious and he's intentional and he loves his wife and he thinks about the scripture, but there's an ease about him that I just don't carry. I'm just too serious. And when he's gone, we feel that. And if you have that gift, we feel that as well. You don't know it because you're not in the room that you're not in, but you carry that. And if you're gone, we miss it. That's, that's what, whether you like it or not, we're not bricks, right? We're family members. We're body parts. And if you're missing an ear, we're going to feel it. Uh, Joey is... Um, Works with uh, Young Life, and uh, uh, he's kind of got that engineer mind, but he, but he loves students, and he helps raise up disciples to the Young Life program at Jail Main. And he's just got this wisdom, like the way that he thinks about his words and the way he budgets his answers, like we could be lost in a question, and he just gets us on track. And Will is always the first one there, because we're always horribly unpunctual, so he's always the first one there uh, in his Tesla, sitting parked backwards the way he is at 5.55 every single morning. And when he gets out of the car, although he's like going to go make seven times more money than I am, you know, today, right, is just the first to be humble and the first um, to share his heart with, within group. Maurice, uh, who's actually here with us today, is an incredibly vulnerable person. And I don't know if you guys know, like, the, the difference between just one vulnerable person in a small group opening up and sharing where they are, not where they wish they were, makes a complete difference. And when he's not there because he slept in one morning, we felt it, okay? So we feel your presence, but we also feel your absence, and I wish I could tell you it's some other way, but though the actions are small, the stakes are really high. Like, basically, for Dorcas, each of these steps of radical obedience meant life or death for her, and life or death spiritually for their neighbors. And so each of these small actions makes a huge, huge deal. So Peter sent them all out of the room, which is just kind of funny because he just made, or Luke just made a huge deal about all of the different people, and then he gets them all in the room to kick them out. But I think there's a reason. So, verse 40, Peter sent them all out of the room. Then, they got, then he got down on his knees, and he prays. So I'm going to model this here. So Peter comes into the room. He kicks everybody out, the cast of characters, the curtain call, at the end of this uh, story. And, uh, and it says he gets down on his knees, and it says he prays, which is really interesting because he doesn't just come barreling in the room and put his hands on Dorcas to heal Dorcas. He prays about praying. Isn't that weird? Like, in, before he goes in and asks the father about something, he asks the father about what he should be asking about. It's kind of what I get. Like, he's praying about praying. This is a conversational thing. So Peter, just get this with me. He sends everybody out of the room, and he gets down on his knees, and he prays. And maybe you could picture with me like a play or something like that, you know, when all the chorus is standing behind you and the lights shut off. Actually, Tucker, can you turn the lights off, the house lights for me? The lights shut off behind, and you just see this spotlight. You don't have a lot of mediums in drama, right, to, to show significance and and music, but, but you're using the simple things that you have to show the point of the story. Peter sent them out of the room, not because they don't matter, but because he wants to focus our attention 
in the midst of the blackout on the spotlight. And he gets down on his knees and prays, and he turns towards that dead woman and does his assignment. This is all that Peter had to do. Tabitha, get up. That was Peter's job. That's all that he had to do. Tabitha, get up. And so I take all that with the dark out here and all the people in the background getting put out of, of the stage and the spotlight hitting, is that the spotlight is meant to show us where our focus is. And I think if you, if you pay attention to the, author, the writer, he's saying that the spotlight is actually not on Peter. The spotlight's not on Dorcas. The spotlight is actually on Jesus. The spotlight is on Peter's knees. Because what Luke is saying here is that there's actually no difference between Peter and Dorcas. Nor is there a difference between Peter and the mortician, or the mortician and the disciple, or the disciple and the sent one, the sent ones and the guards. There's actually no difference. Because it's the end of the day, all of those people are just the church on their knees. At the end of the day, they have different assignments. They have different assignments that look like different places at different times, but the same posture. It's the posture of radical obedience. It's the posture of Jesus, what more can I give you? What's next? This is all that's expected, and this is all that's required of Peter's and Dorcas's like you and me. And so I think there's a really profound promise here, right? Like, the church is doing good. It's 3 billion people on the earth out of 12. It's doing okay. Like, we're not the messiahs on this thing. If you know me and you know you, like, it must not be up to us. And there's this, this divergent path ahead of us as we read the book of Acts to get our eyes so focused on so many things other than Jesus, to focus on the lost and the lostness of our culture or to focus on the signs and wonders that we see or we don't see or to focus on our grievances or the people in our church or the people that we wish were in our church. But Acts continually wants us to put the spotlight on the right thing, which is radical obedience to the, to, to the, to the one who's actually doing the actions. Which is, which is Jesus. And it seems to be this profound thing, like I will make it to the ends of the earth with you. And I don't need your urgent busyness. I need your obedience. I don't need your radical action. I don't need you to talk louder or, or shout downtown with a sandwich board or, or do anything specifically like radical according to what you measure. I just need you on your knees. And if you, your church, if you can get on your knees, I will take you to the ends of the earth that I will take you to the ends of the earth, and Lord will be with you every step of the way, not by, not by urgent busyness, but by radical obedience to Jesus. So this is, the, this is the misconception, I think, the wrong glasses, right, to read the book of Acts with. Acts is not ultimately about extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. It's hard to see past that because they do seem like extraordinary people doing extraordinary things for extraordinary times. Acts is not about that. What Acts is about, it is about ordinary people serving an extraordinary God. It is about a church. It's about you and me on our knees telling Jesus, you're worth it, what's next? And that's all that's expected, and that's all that's required. Like, I don't know if you've looked as an apostle, as a, as a, as a deactivating somebody that you would have, could have, should have been if you can get your act together. Galileus' story is saying that he's not dragging you to church. He's coming to your house, and he's asking you to take a step. And if he says that your step is worth it and matters, then who are you to tell him otherwise? Just take your step. There's no difference between Peter and Dorcas and you or me other than whether or not you're going to take your step. That's all that's expected and that's all that's required. 
is ordinary people following extraordinary God. And so I'll close with this intentional question. I loved Andrew Bird's answer in his, in his interview about, you know, what a missionary actually is. A missionary isn't, can't define them geographically because they live this place or because they collect support. A missionary is a Christian. A Christianary is a mission, missionary, and a missionary is a Christian. And the fundamental question about radical obedience within the heart of every Christian missionary is this. Jesus, how can I give you more today? The author Luke doesn't want us paying attention to the lostness of our world. The lostness of our world, there's people that are lost and dying and going to judgment for eternity. That's not the focus of the apostles that I see. It's not, oh, I want our church to go back to the book of Acts and we'll see X, Y, and Z happen exactly the way that it happens. We're not going back there. That's not the point. The point is not, how are we going to fix the lostness of the world? The point is not, how are we going to see more and more miracles? The point is, Jesus, how can I give you more? Whatever you ask. Whatever you ask for, I'm going to give you because you're worth it. And so the two enemy questions to the missionary question is, 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 is the thing will pop up in our head, and I know it'll pop up in your head because it pops in mine, is two questions is one, what if what you call me to do is not enough? Or two, what if it's too much? Like these are the two things I think we need to get settled in our spirit is that everybody's job matters just as much as the next one and no job is too small and no job is too big. And once you've got that answered in your head with your knees on the ground, there's no stopping what the church can do to the ends of the earth. If it's just to go next door and knock on a door and serve cookies and listen to a, a person talk for two hours, if he's asking you to do it, then who are you to tell him that it's not enough? You must not be having your eyes on Jesus. And if he's asking you to go up to a complete stranger and you have a word of knowledge for them, let's just talk to the introverts in the room. This is like, I'm just trying to think of the worst possible scenario. God taps you on the shoulder right now, downtown Greenville, to talk to somebody two times as big as you to say that you have a word of knowledge. If you go over there and you reject them, are you a failure or a success? This is, the, this is the only difference, right? The only difference between, you know, the disciples and everybody else in this story is whether or not they're on their knees asking Jesus what's next. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. 